I'm Nayan Ramachandran. And I'm Dan Stern. And this is Jay Play, the Plays and Podcast. Welcome to the third episode of J-Play, the Plays and Podcast. I'm your host, Nine Ramachandran, and I'm here, as always, so far, we've only done three episodes, but I'm here with Dan Stern. Dan Stern, what's up? And Ben Judd. Hey, so we're not going to turn this into like a survivor format where uh, hosts or guests get voted off of the podcast, because I think we need to have Dan Stern have a little accident or something like that. <laughs> well, hold wait, on. You said, wait, you said hosts first. That'd be kind of messed up. Host or guest. To well, eject you know our only host. Well, if Nine's got to go, he's got to go. It's like really hard to pronounce last name. There's only three of us, so if we start voting people off, one of us is just going to be talking by themselves. I can do that. I can do that. We we all know you can do that. I believe you can. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, let's get rolling. We have absolutely. We have a lot to talk about. Holy crap, we do! It's been a fantastic campaign for Bloodstain. Uh, we've been getting uh, just amazing responses from people, amazing fan art, uh, just awesome responses from everybody in the community. Uh, people are just really, really into Bloodstain, really into Egovania, and that's super, super cool. Matter of fact, uh, right now we are filming this on a Monday, the 25th of May here in Japan. Mm-hmm. That would be a Sunday, the yep. 24th uh, in America, but... As of this moment, we are at $2.69 million. $2.69, that's the last time we checked. That's right. Mm -hmm. So we are going to do our best Nostradamus impression. Yes. By talking about some stuff that, for us, is the future. The Kickstarter will end in approximately 19 days. Wait, did you mean something different than that? No, I, I meant actually, you know, like actual predictions. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't actually, but because we know all this stuff. But this is stuff that, you know, on when this airs on Friday, uh, all of all of the backers are going to be finding out about this stuff right when they listen to this podcast for the very first time. Right. A lot of this cool stuff will be news to them at that point. That's right. Absolutely. But we, we know some of this has been planned. These are, again, a continuation of the Rondo of Megatons. Rondo of Megatons. Yep, that's right. But uh, speaking of the 2.69 uh, million, this is actually, uh, as far as the data that I've seen, the second fastest Kickstarter to reach this point of funding uh, in so many days. The fastest being Torment, Tides of Numeria. And no one's going to beat that because it had like 1.5 million in a single day. Hold on. Tides of Numenera? Numenera. Right? Is that what it is? That's the one. I yeah. That's it. I, mean, I, don't, I don't speak French, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just a testament to just like how awesome Igarashi-san's fans are. And how much people have been dying for a new game. Well, see, I think that um, Kickstarter also had a really bad 2014. You're always going to have more hits. You're going to have more buzz. You're going to have more views with a negative scoop than you are a positive scoop. And that's just human nature. And I think 2014 was the year of there were some bad things that happened to a lot of Kickstarters. And rather than uh, trumpet and cherish the new Kickstarters that were coming out, 
because that wasn't really considered as news from their perspective. It was much better to come out and say, hey, this Kickstarter failed miserably, or hey, they promised to do all this stuff and they didn't do it. Because those are better news stories. Right. But but what that does is that intrinsically damages Kickstarter as a concept Mm -hmm. because it creates a lot of fear and distrust in your average everyday backer. And it's already a leap of faith. But then when you compile the media also slinging mud at it, it makes it harder and harder to to trust something, which is why EGA, uh, and especially Bloodstained, in 2015, getting this kind of fan reaction means we are even overcoming a lot of the doubt and negativity and buyer beware nonsense that got stirred up in 2014. I actually remember in, in 2014, there were specifically two games that did that had very successful Kickstarters that were amazing to me. It was a Heartforth Alicia and Time Spinner were both badass Kickstarters that did extremely well. And nobody talked about how great they were. Well, no, no, that's not true. Uh, I actually found they, people did talk about how good, how good they were. Uh, Kotaku did articles on both of those, if I recall. What kind of funds did they raise, though? Uh, did they the, get above it was a in the two hundred. No, it was in the two hundred thousand mark. Okay, so I'm talking about in 2013 had several runaway pl- million plus hits. Right, yeah, right. In 2012, even more. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about your broken ages, your torments, your wastelands, anything on the top twenty of which we are, by the way, at this point in time. Number six. Number six. In the game category, and with, uh, I think, 18 days left uh, as of recording. We are in good company. We are. Still, I don't, I don't, I feel like, uh, even, like, I I don't want to call them minor successes because $2,000 is a lot of money. But those games were, those games are still really exciting projects and they still hold a lot of promise. And you can't ignore the fact that there's, uh, there's a lot of interesting material out there. And, uh, that there is, there is interesting titles like that are still getting, um, still getting put out. They're getting put out. But again, anytime you reach the million plus your net and the number of people that you bring in, i.e. the number of eyeballs on it. Mm. And there's a ton of eyeballs and I've seen a ton of opinion pieces and I've seen, uh, tons of like counter arguments uh, about what Kickstarter is supposed to be. Is it really supposed to be for minor indies that are struggling? Is it supposed to be for this new term, big indies? Mm-hmm. I remember as an agent, we were talking about this new term, mid-core, in like 2012. And like, what's mid-core, right? You know, there's always these new classifications. I hate both out. those words. Yes. I think big indie and mid-core are both awful. You know what? Bottom line, if you are an indie developer, you cannot fund your own title. And you need funding from somewhere. And at least for this project, uh, I can say without a doubt, I can swear on uh, my father's grave that we literally did run the gauntlet, talk to every publisher. Mm. They all said no. So whether it's what you would consider a big indie uh, because it's a high profile person or a small indie of two or three people working in a garage that are, are surviving by the skin of their teeth, uh, it makes no difference. This game would not have been made without Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And, you know... If we're talking about negative, sort of positive media and negative media, I remember, you know, way back when Double Fight Adventure slash Broken Age was just first on the scene and then Wasteland was on the scene as well. Kickstarter was like this new thing for video games. It was a really positive atmosphere around like, wow, this is great. All these games that would never would have existed are finally going to come out. People, you know, it's the the power of voting with your wallet in the, in the purest sense. And I thought that was super cool. And I think, you know, you had some games that just, you know, there was no uh, pop and circumstance. It was just, we finished the game. Thanks for funding. Here's what you got. 
And then there were other games that, you know, went through some trouble. Maybe uh, they had to change some certain things because of, you know, some hurdles that they encountered midway through development or late in development. And those got covered more than the games that were like, okay, we got funded. Here's your thing. Let's just, you know, move on. And that ebb and flow of positive feedback, negative feedback, and now we're into positive media and negative media because you've got the holdovers from the previous year of negative news plus positive news from people who are saying, oh man, we've got people like Igarashi, we've got, uh, you know, um, what are those guys, the ukulele guys, I've, I, Platonic, right? Platonic. Platonic. Yeah. We've got them making, you know, working on this amazing title. You've got positive stuff going on there, but then you've got negative stuff with the sort of chasm that's opening uh, between quote unquote big indies and the the smaller indie projects. So there is this really strange mix. I think this could be an interesting year. I think for for how people perceive Kickstarter. Bottom line. Bottom line. Every person that either decides to back or not back a project should do it because they believe in the team or they believe in the creator. Right. And having that sort of faith is not easy, uh, which is why you have, and I agree, buyer beware is a, is totally a fair sentiment, uh, certainly in 2015 when it comes to Kickstarter. But certainly, at least for Bloodstained, one can say, you had two options. You could either trust this man who has made this game seven or eight times and made it well without a playable and I can say this, he went on with six months without a salary. There was no way to build a playable. We would not have had that sort of funding uh, to survive. So you're either going to trust in him based on the conceptual images, the ideas, and his history, and this game will be made. Or you will have doubt, and you will say, until I see something moving, which you are not going to see, uh, then I'm not going to trust this man and fund this. And then there would never be another Egovania game. Those are the two options. I'm really glad there were enough people that came in the former rather than the latter. Because the second more are in the latter than the former. That's when a lot of my favorite childhood hits. Which still, these people are overcoming big challenges to get to this point. Huge challenges, yeah. Um, that would be a sad day. Right. I mean, no, no matter what your classification is, whether whether you're using terms that we don't really prefer, like, like big indie or something like that, or, you know, I don't know, regular indie doesn't make a lot of sense anyway, but no matter what your classification is, everybody needs funding and everybody needs support, and it comes down to users and fans, people who play the games and enjoy it and have fun with it, and then remember it forever after that. Like, it, it comes down to uh, whether or not people will support and care about the, the games that are getting made. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna, I was gonna actually move on to the next part because we've got some really cool stuff coming up. Did you? Was there I, something you wanted I to say? I want to say one final point, and that is, um, I'll say it very quickly. I had uh, done some work on the Mighty Number no. Nine campaign, just the campaign, um, not the actual production or anything like that. But by working on that campaign, I got a lot of experience. And I'll say this: the campaigns matter, and there are lots of ways to structure it. You do not need money or corporate or publisher or anything like that to build a good campaign. Matter of fact, most of the people that worked on this campaign did it on their own risk. Um, yeah. They did it without any payment. So what that means is that it comes down to assembling a team of people that trust in the key concept and believe that you're going to get from point A to point B. And more mid-level or big indies or whatever you want to call them, they could reach even higher goals and higher levels, I think, if they focused on both the production side 
as well as the campaign side, because both are important to, I think, get to the higher goals. And of course, higher goals mean a bigger, more robust game. And who doesn't want that? Absolutely. So as you were saying. Yes. Well, I just wanted to quickly say, this reminded me, big ups to Fangamer. They've done amazing work on the campaign. They've been doing so much. Uh, and, you know, having met a lot of those guys in person uh, at other packs or other events mm, and, yeah. you know, had, being in meetings with them, it's just an amazingly passionate, talented group of men and women. And humble. Very humble. Mm -hmm. They love video games. They love to be involved in this stuff, and they're very, very hardworking. So amazing ups to them for what they've done so far. Yeah, I got to say hi a little bit at PAX, and uh, I had a great time. I, I ended up buying uh, some of like, their FF6 playing cards. Oh, were, yeah, I did too. Which yeah. were dope. And yeah. uh, I, I knew I'd have to take it all the way to back to Japan if I bought it, but uh, I looked I looked very longingly at, at all of the FF6 prints. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff Those there. They were gorgeous, yeah. Um, so we have uh, our next topic. We are looking into the future then. Right, Ben? That's right. You can look at a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, anyone that doesn't know about KickTracks, www.kicktracks, that's T-R-A-Q. Wait, is that actually pronounced KickTracks? Yeah. Is there an S? I thought it was track. Yeah, okay, track. Well, whatever. I can't. I've lived in Japan too long. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We've already had this discussion once. Um, kick tracks. Kick. The silent <laughs> s. The unsilent s. Anyways, um, go there because it, it actually it's free and it shows day to day uh, statistics, <clears throat> uh, number of backers, uh, amount of pledges coming in, and number of comments. And it's very interesting because you can look at it. And compare it to other uh, Kickstarters, and right now we've entered the lull of the Kickstarter campaign, which means we're in the middle of two weeks or three weeks of the campaign, and so there's not a lot of there. They're going to be megatons, as we said, but there's not a lot of people that are jumping on the ship. That happens in the beginning. People that are like, "I'm a true believer. I'm in. I'm definitely sold on this." Why wait? Let's just Why get wait? do it now. This is going no matter what I'm in. And then the last week of people that say, "You know what? This is great, and it's going to end. So I need to support it." Because I don't want to miss my chance, right? Exactly. And you don't want to miss your chance because a lot of the stuff that we have, uh, as far as rewards go, you're not going to get a chance to get it again. Yeah, we're not going to release it in stores. And you're not going to be able to get it at this price. So there you have it. But the point is this. You can look at that algorithm and we will know that probably by around Wednesday, uh, if all the backer achievements are met, that we will be unlocking... The basement. Finally. Finally. But uh, I say finally, still amazing. Just you can see the interaction on forums of people just be like, make more comments or, or comics, sorry. Or like, oh, you know what? Did anybody do a clay model? And they're just like, they're delegating work to people that can or can't do it. And it's great to see that. So speaking of, of the basement, just the amazing amount of art creations that have been coming out on the Tumblr to fill out those backer achievements to get more of that stuff unlocked. Uh, and that, that's been super amazing. And, and, you know, we all spent some time today looking through the Tumblr to find our picks for what we wanted to give cool shout outs for today. We're going to do that after this next section, but it's worth mentioning because by this time we will finally have officially announced the Wii U stretch goal. Yes. And that's, that I think is an awesome announcement. You know, every single time there's a Kickstarter that I've worked on, there's always a real thirst for a Wii U port and for a Wii U version. It's obvious that the Wii U fans are a very, very dedicated bunch. They want to see more great games on the system, and I think it's really awesome that we'll be able to give that to them. There are kind of two things, too. It's like, from the beginning, obviously, the series that, that Igarashi was working with began on a Nintendo system. 
And Igarashi's work was continued on a Nintendo system. All of the GBA games, all of the DS games were all so fantastic. And I, I had played so many of them, you know? It's like, I want to see uh, other people who, like, also supported those systems when those games were coming out. I want to see them get, like, access to the game on their system of choice, too. Can we do some real talk? Yeah. yeah no, no real, real talk. talk. <laughs> only only orchestrated talk. Like, I'm always, I'm always kind of loath to have these sort of conversations because it's a very divisive topic. Mm-hmm. And that is, obviously, we turned on the light in the basement. And we hinted at maybe there would be a Wii U skew at three million. Yeah. And now by this time it's been revealed. And um, I was shocked to see that there were a large number of people that actually threatened to remove their pledges if a Wii U skew was going to be made. Hold um, on, and and is this is this because they feel it's going to affect the other console versions? That's it. They felt that the Wii U was the lowest common denominator, tech wise. Uh, which it is. It is, yeah. Compared to the others. Uh, but by doing that, ultimately, it would mean that the bar would be lowered to that so that something that had more graphical prowess, like PlayStation 4, would not look the best that it could be. But that's so, been planned for from the very beginning. What, uh, what's been planned for? That the game would be made for the high, like for not the highest, but rather for what is appropriate for the game in the first place. And then if funding would make a, a port conceivable, then that would be carried out separately from the uh, from where the rest of the bar was like was set at. So I saw another comment on top of that, which said, even if stretch goals made a Wii U version possible, right, that ultimately I'm going to pull my funding because that means stretch goal money is being used for something I don't want. Well, the reality is this. Different strokes for different folks. There's so many different types of people. There's different types of gamers. We all have different systems. And yes, you get to vote with your dollars. And if the game coming out on the Wii U and you being able to share this experience with a larger group of gamers is really that bothering to you, then there's not much that can be done because you're never going to be able to please all the people all the time, right? That's the the age-old saying. But I can say this. We're going to go into great detail about the Wii U SKU, and we're going to be very transparent. We're going to uh, describe how this is possible, and it's not been easy because it's required a combination of, again, back-end investment, some stretch goal money, and then finding a partner that was willing to take it on because this is technologically a major challenge. Anybody that knows anything about programming will tell you this is going to be a major challenge. This is monumental. In fact, we have had discussions about how can we get this done without sacrificing the quality of the versions that we've already promised because that's exactly what we want to do. We want to deliver the original goals and the original promise for the campaign. That's that's everything that we want to do. This campaign exists for the people who originally pledged to it, of course. But when we open these stretch goals, we don't want to diminish the original project and the original product because that hurts everybody in the end. People think that like this was planned out from the beginning. You know what? We're all here. We were all there at the beginning. Uh, we can say that, you know, we threw a random dart uh, at a dartboard and said, hey, you know what? We think it'll cost this much. <laughs> we think, you know, pie in the sky, we're going to get this number, then maybe we can do it. But it was just something that was so far ahead, we never thought we'd probably even really get there. And we thought that 500,000 was, it was A, the number we needed to prove out. But we thought it was a number that we could probably get to. 
we thought if we were lucky, we'd get up to a million. Um, as soon as we started getting past a million and getting to like two million, then all of a sudden the Wii U SKU was something that made financial sense. Before that, it didn't. It was a tangible reality, a possibility. And as soon as it became a tangible reality, of course, we want more people to play this game. Yes, we want the Nintendo fans to play this game. Yeah, it is. So we yeah. want to be able to see that Nintendo fans are able to play it on the system that, you know, has, with, with the, sorry, with the, uh, the systems that have uh, supported Ego's games for so long. And again, how we're going to make sure that both versions, I say both versions because it's going to be the original version that we focused on for the initial goal, and then now the Wii U version. How both versions are going to be good is that we're going to have two different developers focused only on that. So Indie will focus on the core game. Uh, that's going to include PlayStation 4, the Xbox One, PC, Mac, and Linux. That's all they're going to do. They're not going to focus on anything else. The Wii U is going to be focused on a fantastic uh, company that knows how to port, and that's all they're going to focus on. So hopefully we're going to see the best of both worlds. No one knows when you start porting what it's going to ultimately end up being. But we can say this. We have tried to take the best, most careful steps we can to make sure that all SKUs look the best they can be, number one. And number two, we're still going to be able to make an awesome game. That includes Ega's biggest game ever. Yep. That includes the speedrun mode. That includes classic mode. That includes 8-bit areas. Already we've unlocked a ton of stuff. And honestly, if you look at the algorithms, there's a very good chance we're going to unlock a whole bunch of other great stuff. So, you have the right to pull your pledge, but I really hope you don't, because if you don't, you're going to be a part, I think, of something big, and you're going to be able to say a message to the publisher that, hey, I want to support this guy, you guys should have supported this guy. And there's a lot of special stuff coming up in um, a lot of the stretch goals. A lot of really amazing stuff coming up. Uh, and uh, coming up as well, we're going to be talking about our favorite entries into the Bloodstained Tumblr. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking more about that. We'll be right back. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the campaign itself, uh, but um, I wanted to focus a little bit on the Tumblr, which is the bloodstained Tumblr that uh, that's been that sound that sounded weird. It's the bloodstained game Tumblr. Sounds like a Tumblr that's bloodstained. Yeah, we got it. it. We got it. <laughs> Forget it. We got it. Okay, we got so, it. So that's terrible. That's terrible. Anyway, so yeah, the Tumblr that's been going on. People have been posting all their art and music and uh, comics and all kinds of stuff. And we all have uh, our individual lists of uh, all the artists that we wanted to call out as being totally awesome. Um, who wants to go first? I think Dan should go first. Yeah, I think I should go first. I think Dan should go first. Because Boy, the smooth, chocolatey flavor of Elsie brand Fudsicles is real good. Uh, I've got, uh, first of all, color, yeah, shake your head, John. You're going to be editing that one. Uh, first of all, Color Laboratory. I saw the, the atmosphere in, in that, in that drawing. It's, when you look at it, it's, it's Miriam in the front. 
in front of this this huge graveyard uh, on a hill, and on top is some kind of enemy, and it seems like it could be Boston-like. It's, certainly the atmosphere suggests a, a Boston counter. And just the atmosphere of it was so good. The color choice was excellent. The The scale of the drawing itself, because uh, Miriam is tiny in that image, and so is the boss, uh, but the scale of the, the setting and scenario is just incredibly good. Uh, I love that. It, it reminded me of the Father Gas, uh, Gascon boss fight in Bloodborne. In Bloodborne, right. The uh, one you you died how many times? Uh, I was like 20,000 the first time, and then actually the second time I, I, I cleared him in one shot. So. Wow. <laughs> nice. Anyway, I, I loved I loved how that harkened back to... I mean, I don't even know that it was on, on purpose, but it it did remind me of a, of a boss fight in which I had a, a really... Maybe, maybe far too much emotion uh, invested. Uh, see, Miss Mishmash also did an amazing drawing. Uh, I love the color in that one. Extremely, like, hard uh, black outlines that made for uh, a crisp drawing. And the reflections on the floor were, uh, were a really cool, nice touch. And then Bulletproof Turtle Man. I love that name. The <laughs> name is fantastic. Such a hilarious username. I love that. Uh, the expression on, on Miriam's face there is, is incredible. Uh, I remember that um, Urusawa Naoki, a Japanese manga artist who did the 20th, 20th Century, Century Boys, Boys and Pluto and Billy Bat and some other things, he has a famous quote on uh, expressions where he feels that you should not be able to tell what a character is thinking from seeing any given expression on their face, but you should get some kind of feeling out of it. And I definitely got that out of this drawing. Very, very powerful expression. But not something specific that I could put into words very easily. Huh, interesting. And then a couple of random shout-outs. Alucard616, Jaden Kaiba, and Byron YNG. Uh, all of those excellent drawings, amazing designs. Thank you very much. Yeah, Byron uh, YNG uh, saw that earlier today. Thought it was Byron uh, YNG is really awesome. Really, really liked it. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. So do you mind if I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. I'll go last. Okay. I'm going to jump in. Uh Honestly, uh, both Nyan and Dan took all the good stuff. No, <laughs> there is so much good stuff to go around that that is absolutely not true. This was something that got submitted right before we did this podcast, but it is uh, by Junki Sakuraba, uh, and it is a stained glass bat. Old uh, SGB in gangster talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thing is amazing. It makes me wish I had a gigantic um, felt poster of it hanging above my bed with a black light shining on it and a lava lamp next to me because yeah. it is a beautiful use of like rainbow coloring um, and just like it's nice for people to be original. It, I mean, we love the Miriam art, we love the Johannes art, um, JL art. We love we love it all, but it's nice to see somebody take it in a different direction as well. So I appreciate that sort of creativity. Um, second is we had a, an Iga bust, an actual clay figuring created of Iga. Now it did not have a cowboy hat or uh, fangs. So there are a few minor details missing, <laughs> but we're going to let it slide. Uh, that was by someone named Huddle. Again, I just love not just the art, but seeing people be creative with sculptures, seeing people be creative with stained glass, with tattoos, with cosplay, just the huge, like, wide variety of creativity that all of these backers and fans are showing uh, towards us. And they all seem very enamored by the characters in the world that has been created so far, that it is just super, super exciting. Um, and then finally, uh, I'm going to go with 
Cray Gallery's take on Miriam, and that is it looked almost like a 1920s or 30s Dick Tracy-esque like comic uh, style. And again, to take that character and turn it into something that's very stylized like that was super impressive to me. That sounds super awesome. I think I missed that one. Otherwise, you would have taken it from me. That's true. So I would have taken it from I you. Hid it, I hid it from you. I mean, so you we were going it. out of our way to take all the best stuff so that Ben couldn't have any. So. Well, I got three really awesome things, so shut up. Yeah, there's, just, there's just too much. You can't take it all. It's impossible. <laughs> all right. So with that, I'll pass it over to Nyan, and I'm curious about what you found. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm totally breaking our rules right now uh, because I have my phone out. We have a rule on the podcast, don't have your phone out. I have my phone out right now. Um, this guy, man. I know. Um, it's a Nokia. Loser. <laughs> it's it's not a Nokia. So the, the first one is uh, the John Sue. It's a fantastic voxel art version of Miriam. Uh, and this, this, the, really the coolest part about it is that this voxel art is done and presented as a gift. So it's rotating. So you get to see the depth of the character and you get to see all the detail and even like the stained glass, like tattoos on her body, her clothing, her face, everything on it is just absolutely fantastic. So it was rotating. Does that mean it was a rondo of voxels? It was a rondo of voxels. Okay. <laughs> I thought we, I thought we came to the conclusion that rondos were, were pop songs. No, no, we came to the conclusion it's spinning. Can we, can we just make it whatever the hell we want? At yes, this point? it is exactly whatever we want it to be. <laughs> um, so the second one on my list is uh, Ruvology, which is one I actually took from Ben. Uh, truth be told, I actually picked it first, and then Ben felt all sad. I the, so picked it first. No, he didn't pick it first. Um, but I think, I think Ben, you and I picked it for the same reason, which was uh, Ruvology's art with Miriam is this amazing homage to the original Kojima Ayami box art for uh, Castlevania Lament of Innocence, which is just absolutely fantastic. I always loved the composition of of Leon, the main character, looking up, holding the whip in his hand. And uh, the rendition uh, shown in, in, this, in this homage is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And wait, you said we could only pick three, right? I have four on my list. As the host, I think that you are allowed an extra pick. Okay, I'm allowed an extra. Okay, good. And again, that's why I didn't have any to choose because <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Captain Greedy chose four. I chose four. You know, honestly, there's so many awesome ones that I just couldn't pick just three. The next one is one that I really, really loved. And, you know, it's it's uh, by an artist uh, whose name is Rock CR. And it's, a, uh, it's an inked black and white drawing on paper and originally you know you see the scanned picture and you're kind of scrolling down through the tumbler and you see it's supposed to take it's the the painting is called or the the drawing is called uh, red chapel and as you're scrolling down through the 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 tumbler you kind of see the top half which is this chapel with ornate angel reliefs and you know some weird demon baby things going on and then it scrolls down and then you see uh you see miriam standing there sort of her back to the rest of the this whole cathedral it, it's just a super awesome drawing, but what I loved so much about it was right after that scan is a picture of Roxiar's drawing table with some graphing paper and art and, and uh, you know, graphing utensils and pens and stuff with that inked drawing just sitting there. So you, you know, like, yeah, they did it by hand, like using all these amazing tools, just um, incredible art, incredible work put into it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like amazing tools available to, to digital artists these days. Working by hand is becoming a novelty. It is, and I thought it was super awesome that they actually took a picture of you know their own art table to show what they did with their with their own two hands. 
And uh, the final one, which also was another one that uh, Ben and I almost fought over, is uh, the webcomic by Eon Valley. Eon, Aeon, Eon. I'm going to say Eon Valley. Uh, I'm sorry if I... I'm going to say Aeon. Okay, so whoever's whoever's right, the other one loses, I guess. Whoever. Uh, and uh, yeah, Eon Valley's uh, really, really cool uh, webcomic. I know it's an ongoing webcomic. I had a chance to read a couple of the other ones, but really liked the, the Bloodstained one. I thought it was just super cute, simple joke, cool art. You know, likable art style that's very, very different from what you expect out of the series, but really had it meld well into the type of comic that uh, Eon Valley is doing in their own webcomic. Then I'm going to take a fourth one. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you're, breaking, you're breaking the rules. You're breaking the rules, but I'm going to let you. All the rules. You broke the rules first, man. I, I, I didn't even find out who this person was, but I wanted to call it to a cosplay, and that is there's somebody to the Johannes and look, mm. look very much like Johannes. But the uh, character out of Johannes, it shows him holding it looks, what looks like a little mini Bible or scriptures or something. And this person was holding what looked like his passport. Oh. So that cracked me up. Probably wasn't his passport, but it looked like a passport. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's nice. Anyways. Uh, actually, wait, wait. Hold on. You guys are getting four. I want four. My, my last one would be, I want to upgrade uh, my shout out from Alucard616. Uh, he did... A, a clay sculpture of one of the uh, enemies. It's a, it's a creature design. And I, at first, when I looked at it, I thought it was a cookie. And uh, Oh, that, that was the, the, the demon starfish-looking one, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really One, awesome. the design is awesome. Two, uh, I thought it was a cookie at first. <laughs> so, you just liked it because it was a cookie. He's like, no, he's... no, I thought it was awesome, and I thought it was a cookie, so that it kind of doubled it. But it's not a cookie. Uh, it's not, but it is a really cool design, and I would eat about a thousand cookies like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So we've got we've got some awesome stuff to talk about. I wanted to take a really really quick break, and we'll be right back. We've got some great great stuff to talk about in the next segment. How's that, guys? How's that? How's that sound? Sounds, Sounds great, man. All right. Stop it. We'll be right back. We're back. Uh, so we've, you know, we've been talking about a whole lot of really interesting stuff with the community, with um, with what's been happening with the campaign so far and the future of the campaign as well. But I really wanted to focus next on some just incredible announcements that technically we're speaking from the past into the future. But for people listening to this, we are talking from the past to the present. Is that right? Does that make sense? Yes. It does make sense. Did anybody yeah. actually listen to what I just said? You're going to hear this on Friday, and right. by Friday, all these announcements will have been made, but they haven't been made as of now, the recording time, which is a month. Correct. So if you were listening to this on the day that we're recording, these would be huge megatons. But of course they wouldn't be because it has to be edited by everyone's favorite, John Johansson. Yes. Not Johannes. John Johansson. Distant relative. <laughs> Distant relative. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, but... The, the biggest megaton is... The biggest megaton. This is the one I'm most excited about. Most excited about uh, is Ben. So, this is a true story. Absolutely true. There will no doubt be 
some people that say, oh, this was always planned. BS. We did the Kickstarter launch on uh, Twitch, and the money came in more than anybody assumed. Totally shocked, totally overjoyed. And it was then, right then, that Iga got an email from Kojima, Ayami Kojima, one of uh, the, the people that's on everyone's list as far as who they want as a stretch goal or whatever. Um, and we did try contacting her a few times to get her involved. And the reality was uh, exactly what we wrote in the fact. She was just too busy. Well, guess what? That is the power of Kickstarter. Again, be as negative or cynical or doubting that you want to. But this kind of grassroots fan just excitement has a way of making even busy people say, you know what? This is something big enough that I need to carve out time. I'm willing to get involved. Mm. And, you know, for me personally, while Ayami Kojima's art has been incredibly important in, you know, Castlevania's history, it is her art is sort of a, a modern addition uh, from something that I onward. But I do think that her art has had such an effect on Castlevania as a series in terms of its aesthetic, its box art, uh, the character design that... With for Bloodstain, you really do feel that she she should be there. She should be doing art for it, and it makes so much sense. She's a part of the band. I mean, if you look at Symphony of the Night, it is it's Iga, it is Yamane, and it is Kojima. And we knew this when we were formulating the campaign, and we really, really wanted her to join. Uh, and it was you know it was a shock, not a shock. It was a shame that she was too busy. But again. I go back to my point. The Kickstarter backers, their excitement, and the sheer speed at which they supported this concept had a profound effect on her to the point where she said, I can't ignore this. It doesn't matter how busy I am. I need to find a way to carve out even a small fraction of my time to be a part of this. This isn't any of us on the back end. This isn't even Ega. That, that did this. This was you. Yeah, so absolutely. that is, the, this is a movement. This is an event that has occurred and has occurred through everybody's support. And there's not a lot of Kickstarters that you can say this about that brought somebody back. A lot of times that's pre-planned or whatever. In this case, nope, I was there. Fan Gamer was there during the Twitch event when we got the email. And Iga said, I just got an email from Kojima. And she said, Congratulations. She still seems like she's kind of on the fence about whether she's going to be able to do this or not because she really, truly is busy. But in the end, again, it continued to, the momentum continued to rise. And because of that, we are very fortunate to be able to offer a slipcase that is designed uh, with her in mind. And again, this is only going to be something available for the Kickstarter campaign. I don't want to sound like somebody on the shopping channel, but like it was the Kickstarter backers that did this. It was nobody else. Yeah. It's nobody buying this at retail. It was the backers that had faith, that jumped on early, that made this happen. Well, I mean, think about it. Like, if you if you're a person who makes uh, some kind of art form in this in this case uh, paintings, if you make something and you see suddenly uh, you know thousands of people want your involvement, specifically your involvement in a project that you put plenty of your own time into in the first place, people that you worked with before and you, you maybe you love that time and you, you love being involved in the first place, 
But now you see that the people at the very end of it all who were supporting it and, and holding it all up in the first place, that they really cared and really appreciated everything that you were doing, that you see that they want your involvement now. Wouldn't that change how you feel about it? Wouldn't That's, that change how you like want to be involved? Absolutely. And it just it's worth saying one final point. For her, it's not about money. I mean, she's got a standard rate, like every talented artist, but it was never about money. It was about she just didn't have the time. Again, that was the message we said in the fact from the beginning. But it's funny that your heart can have a way of telling you when it's time to make time. And that's what happened here. So me, Ben Judd, would like to say thank you to all the backers that showed the faith to jump on, even in 2015, when it was certainly more easy to be negative and cynical than it was to have faith. But because of that... We have an awesome bonus uh, in the $100 collector's edition version, the slipcase. But that's not even, <laughs> Sally like the shopping channel too, but that's not all. But wait, there's <laughs> more. <laughs> there's more. Don't do that. Because I, I really didn't want to say that, but it's, it really like, I'm, I'm looking at it in my notes and I'm just like, oh my God, that, that really isn't the only thing. <laughs> I can't believe that we managed to get like the incredible uh, Robert Belgrade to come back. He has not done, as far as I've seen, anything. A voice acting gig in probably two or three years. Matter of fact, he, he was gone. Like, there was a YouTube uh, interview with him, I think, a year or two ago, where these people actually tracked him down and found him. I didn't think in a million years we'd be able to get him. But we did track him down. And it wasn't easy. But sure enough, he remembers this project as one of his shining moments when it came to voice acting. That's so cool. And so we're going to be able to have him in the game. Now, the level that he'll be in the game, um, whether it is something accessed through cheat codes, uh, whether it is a full-blown boss, whether it's something else, all that's still something we're discussing. Um, But the most important part is that he's in. And again, it's like the band... Like, we haven't just got, like, the Beatles. We've got, like, the background, like, brass section as well. Like, everybody attached that to one, it. That one, like, guitarist that toured with them in 65 has decided to come back for the reunion album. We've got we've got the fifth Beatle for this campaign as well. So, again, that's amazing. That's exciting. He's going to have a tier, a reward tier, just like David Hayter uh, does. And so... Whether you're a Hater fan or whether you're a Robbie Belgrade fan, it's up to you. But again, awesome times for us to be able to uh, have him on the campaign and for him to be willing to come out of his voice acting retirement just to be a part of this. I mean, that's super cool, especially because, you know, if you think about other voice actors, um, you know, they may be just busy. And that's just a, that's just the concept of, okay, how can we make, you know, the time to work with you. How can we, you know, jockey around our schedules to make sure that you can be involved in this? But this is like close to miracle status. Even getting uh, Robbie Belgrade involved in this. I mean, did we even think this was going to be possible? I didn't. Like a lot of these things, a lot of these Rondo of Megatons that came out were through grinding and grinding and hoping. And again, it's like you have the initial goal, and then when you totally blow it away. You're like, okay, now we can do more things. So let, how about doing this and how about doing that? And a lot of this stuff is fan input. Like I personally, I only played Symphony of the Night in Japanese. I never played it in English, which is why if you saw me on the two-player um, Double Fine dev play with Iga, 
uh, I was shocked for the first time I saw what is a man in a miserable pile of secrets. I'd never actually known that before. Um, so I didn't really know about Robbie Belgrade until I saw the fans saying, I want that guy back. And you know what? Again, that's kind of like the fans, the backers were the spark, even for him. And I think what's super cool about it is that while so much of what Bloodstain takes from Iga's uh, previous titles is sort of universal. A lot of it is what the fans from around the world have always loved. And I love that Robbie Belgrade almost, well, not almost, he entirely embodies something that's so inherently Western in how we have consumed Iga's work in the past. I thought that was super, super cool. So what, a, what an incredible addition. So there's one more thing. There's one more thing, Dan. Did you want to lead with this? You have your glasses on. You can read the notes, yes? We've got the... It starts with an S, H... Oh, oh, you're talking about the... Yeah, it's, it looks like it says uh, Shovel, uh, Knight... Oh, Collaboration. Oh, right. I, be- I, I believe I remember seeing some art from this. I mean, seriously, like the, the, the art that we've seen so far is, is pretty amazing, too. Uh, at the very least, seeing an enemy with, uh, with Shovel Knight design is, is pretty incredible. And it fits so closely with the, the Armor Knight uh, concept, too. Right now, it is just a, a collaboration, uh, artist collaboration uh, between our campaign, Yacht Club Games. Um, and that's because, again, they're a very successful Kickstarter. Uh, Iga got to play their game on the Twitch stream. He loved it. Like, again, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, the money was flowing in and I was getting all excited, uh, me being the uh, agent that I am. And every time I do a number call out, he's just like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But hold on. I got to beat this boss. <laughs> he really, really loves Shovel Knight. He really loves Shovel Knight. So uh, he's honored to have a chance to do an artist uh, collaboration. Natsume, um, again, amazing artist. He worked on this piece. Uh, I really hope that it's, it's exciting for all the fans that it is for us. But it ties into one other piece, and that is that we are going to be doing call outs to other Kickstarters, trying to raise awareness uh, for potentially smaller Kickstarters, if you are a backer and you have a little scratch to go around, feel free to look at these other Kickstarter campaigns. And if something jumps off the page at you, please look at it. We did uh, Winter Flame uh, last week, this week. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be because it's still Monday, but we'll know on Wednesday. But we're supposed to be like, we're supposed to know it's the future. We've been predicting the future the entire time, but we, we don't know that. Right. Nine, you are older in the future than you are now. My God. That's right. So... So speaking speaking of monster designs, yes, right with the Shovel Knight collab, uh, which looks incredibly super cool. I'm so excited for that. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit more about the monsters of Bloodstained, and we're going to do that after a break, I assume. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll chat about it. Uh, we'll be right back. So uh, now we're going to be talking about monsters, demons, creatures of the night. Things that go bump in the night. And even some things that maybe don't go bump, but are still pretty terrifying. Things that give you a horrible night. Some things that are uncomfortable and sometimes not so pleasant. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. So um, we wanted to talk about mostly, what was the, 
the the original uh, inspiration for the creatures that are going to be in Bloodstained, which is actually uh, a little bit of a, of a departure from Igarashi's past titles. So again, um, with this, you know, he wants it to to be a turning point in his career, and doesn't want to rely on all the old things that he's known for. He wants to kind of throw the users and the gamers a curveball, so to speak, try something new, uh, which I can appreciate. Nobody likes to be typecast, whether you're an actor, uh, a singer, or a creator uh, of games. So him trying to do that, um, and I think the direction he went in is also very interesting, uh, which is Solomon's... Solomon's Book of Lesser Demons, right? That's right. That, that's, that's what it is. Um, which I think is super cool because there's there's incredible amounts of material in there. And the coolest thing about uh, Solomon's Demons is that there's not just a ton of material for naming, but uh, there's art that already exists, sketches for all these lesser demons that are meant to exist. So being able to look at the art, look at what those demons are supposed to represent, and then trying something new with it, changing the art a little bit, changing what they represent, how they appear in the game. There's so much material to work with, and I think that's a really like you don't get to see that kind of stuff in a lot of a lot of games. So I, I'm really really excited to see uh, where it goes. And of course, we've already seen some of it uh, on the campaign, but there's just so much more to show. Something interesting uh, that I noticed about it is that obviously the book was written in Solomon's time. Uh, it's it's a very very old document, but one of the latest English editions was edited by Aleister Crowley, which sort yep. of bridges the gap between between ancient and like relatively modern which sort of helps it situate closer within the uh the bloodstained timeline i think yeah so for the for the listeners who who might not know who who Crowley is could you maybe elucidate for us uh Aleister Crowley was a i don't know if he was a if he was a cultist himself or if cultists formed around uh, some of the some of the ideas that he had about existence and humans uh, place within it. Okay. When was this around? Circa. Uh, I want to say seventeen to eighteen hundreds, which is the perfect timeline for what this game is set in. Absolutely. So that's great. Um, another thing, and it's great to be a part of this campaign because I've seen the pre-launch campaign, I've seen the ongoing campaign. And ideally, as Ika's agent, I'll get to see the after effect of the campaign. And initially, it was, you know, you know, I still he really likes classic movie monsters. They're they're fun, and they're something that everybody knows. But again, he wanted to try something new. But as he was trying this new thing, he's like, you know what? I I really like classic movie monsters. <laughs> and as he launched the campaign, I think he started to get more and more like. Like, eh, you know what, I kind of, I really want to go in that direction. You know, like, like I'm not going to necessarily put Dracula or the Grim Reaper in this. I'm not going to go that far. But there needs to be some classic movie monsters in here. Some touchstones that everybody can really appreciate. So you may get a wide mixture that you haven't seen before. Again, we've already crossed the 2.75 million goal, I think, by this mm-hmm. time. Uh, certainly with the PayPal money, so that you will have the biggest Vania castle you've ever seen. And that needs to be populated with a lot of monsters. So it'll be nice to see some of the Solomon's Tome uh, demons, uh, but also maybe some classic movie monsters. Something that's fun is that a lot of those classic movie monsters, too, are, uh, are monsters that originated in classic literature in the first place. You know, I mean, Frankenstein itself is, is Mary Shelley anyway. So it's not like... 
a lot of those don't resonate well with the uh, the time period for uh, Crowley's edition of Solomon's Grimoire. Well, I can't wait to see the stained glass bat again in Gangster Talk. <laughs> the SGB. The SGB. Uh, making its parents in the game. Are we going to try to insert that into the text somewhere? Oh, it's the SGB! Watch out! Oh, SGB! Miserable pile of SGB. Oh, snap, Mario! <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to make that happen. We're going to try to make that happen. But anyways, uh, just a very quick discussion on monsters. Uh, by this time, we'll have seen the monster update. We'll have seen the boss update. We'll have seen a lot of stuff. Please keep your comments going on in the comment section. should be really exciting. Uh, and with that, we're going to move on to an interview. Now, what is this interview again? So uh, coming up, we're going to have an interview with uh, Takumi Naramura. He's the director of La Milana, a, a classic style, sort of Igavinia-like game with a little different focus. Even if you've never played La Milana, definitely stick around for the interview. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm here for another interview. Uh, this time I'm with the awesome Takami Narumura, the director of La Mulana and La Mulana 2. Uh, thank you so much, Narumura-san, for being here today. Hello, my name is uh, Naramura. I am the uh, director over at Nigoro, and the title that we're most famous for is going to be La Mulana. Uh, for those that don't know La Mulana, it's kind of an indie version of a uh, Castlevania-type game. All right, let's, uh, let's get right to the interview. What were your strongest influences in developing La Mulana? Probably the first creative spark uh, that led us into creating La Mulana uh, would be a very old school title uh, Konami made called Maze of Garius. And that coupled with the concept of the treasure hunter, aka uh, Indiana Jones, that sort of style was something that, I, that really appealed to me. Uh, and that sort of formed the backbone of La Mulana. What game did you first really fall in love with? Probably the first game. This is this is a Japanese title uh, as well that I'm going to reference. But the first game that I truly uh, became addicted to and really, really, I guess, fell in love with uh, is an action RPG titled uh, Hydlide. So back then, it was a game that really captured my interest and uh, just didn't let go. What inspires you when uh, creating a monster or a or a boss character? So, uh, when first thinking about our basic monster design or our boss design, um, we tried to pull it from like monsters of legend that people might be familiar with. Uh, that being said, you can't just grab any monster that you think people are going to know. You kind of also have to look at them visually and, and sort of think how they're going to animate and how they're going to move within the game stage. Uh, and if they have a very flexible or interesting animation pattern that you can envision when you look at them, then they're definitely something that fits more in the game world. So it's usually a combination of both. Do you think you could um, describe your process for designing a boss? When designing a boss, one of the things we, uh, of course, first look at is, is the visual design, how we think it's going to play visually in the game world. That being said, 
bosses are very important. They're, they're a very important facet of any game. And so you need to always take pains to balance things like when it comes onto the screen, is that animation time going to be too long to the point where people are going to be like, okay, hurry up, hurry up, get on the screen. I want to fight you already. Does the boss have fantastic effects attached to its attacks, but in the end, it's just too easy to beat uh, or vice versa. So there's a wide variety of different facets to uh, building out a boss that requires a lot of honing, tweaking and balancing to really make for a great boss battle. Uh, And of course the base feeling that you want to go for is you really want to surprise the gamer. You really want to give them something that they haven't uh, seen before. Um, And so when they're playing them, they feel a certain amount of um, excitement, but also uh, risk. Of course, Bloodstained and Lamlad 2 are both uh, funded through Kickstarter. Uh, How has Kickstarter changed your development process? Honestly, with Lamalana 2, the amount of money we needed to finish the game, uh, we had a couple of options. We could have borrowed a a large sum from a bank, or we could have gone the Kickstarter route. Um, And both had its advantages and disadvantages. But we decided to go the Kickstarter route. And a lot of people, um, of course, feel that with going the Kickstarter route, you have this added pressure of the fans constantly uh, nitpicking you and constantly pressuring you to get the game out faster or to do certain things that they would want you to do. And while uh, it's true, there is some pressure in the background for someone like myself. I got to make the game that I wanted to make. And when you're a creator that gets to make the game that you want to make, you don't really feel that as pressure. You're honestly in this bubble of happiness. And matter of fact, it really comes down to how you view those comments. If you view them as pressure, then they're going to feel heavy. But if you view them as a great way to connect to your audience and to empower your creators, then it becomes fuel for the fire that makes you burn hotter and faster as a creator naturally. Um, and I would assume that both Inafune-san and Igarashi-san, even though they have a lot more eyeballs on them right now, still feel the same way as I do, which is they get to make the game that they want to make, which should make any creator happy. And one other thing, you see this a lot on Kickstarters, digital rewards, uh, higher tier rewards of which you a backer can get themselves in the game. And I know sometimes it's a double-edged sword because people don't want the world to feel forced like it's a, there's a fourth wall that's that's being broken, uh, but still a successful Kickstarter campaign requires higher tier rewards. One of the things right now that we're kind of wrestling with internally is we had a lot of people support us at a high tier reward that allows them to get a message in the game, and we of course are going to make good on our promise. But how we can work with the backers to get them to understand what sort of things are going to fit the game world and what sort of things are potentially going to hurt the game experience and where they can compromise and can compromise. That's an area right now that we're trying to navigate. It's certainly not an easy part of the Kickstarter process because if somebody has invested money, they're naturally going to expect that thing in the way that they want it. But we still have to make sure it stands well as a game in in of its own right. Do you think uh, Lamalana is more about uh, puzzles and traps than the combat? Uh, What is it about those obstacles uh, that that really appeals to you? So, if I was going to put focus on either combat or um, traps and solving puzzles, probably it would would definitely have to go on the traps and solving puzzles. And 
the reason for that is, you know, you play the role of an architect. You, you look at these relics, and then based on solving the puzzles, that expands the gameplay. And a lot of people classify this game as a Metroidvania-type game. But from our perspective, it's different. It goes in different directions so much as traditional Metroidvania games, you get different items or a skill that unlocks a larger part of the area. Whereas with La Mulana, you have to solve a puzzle, and that will make the area expand from that point. So I guess if we were going to have to label this as some sort of subgenre, it would be Indievania. <laughs> do you gain any inspiration from any of the newer games that have come out, or do you find the classic games uh, are more your side for inspiration? So, yes, um, I honestly don't play a lot of modern games. Uh, uh, that sounds kind of uh, embarrassing, but as soon as I bought a PlayStation Vita and you could play all those classic PlayStation 1 games, I just downloaded a ton of those and continue to play those. So, from my perspective, it's those old games, it's the 2D games that we kind of focus on as a company and that I personally really enjoy. So, that's that's kind of where my, my heart is. So, uh, for Lumla 2... Uh, you recently started a closed alpha program for the Kickstarter Packers. Uh, how useful has the feedback been in just the short time the program has been active? And how has that affected development? So, yes, we call it an alpha test instead of a basic beta test because the things that we can check at this level of development are going to be a lot less than a beta test. Uh, the first and foremost, the thing we want to check is if the people on the network playing at the same time are going to bring the network down a lot. So it's merely a stress test uh, on the network itself. Um, but once we've seen that and we know whether the bandwidth is working or not, then the next thing is going to be the level of difficulty, whether the puzzles are something that people are able to solve together, etc. So that's going to be the second round of feedback that we look forward to. But uh, it's just it's really good to try and get active feedback from your backers that you know uh, really believe in this title because it really helps you make it a better game. Thank you so much to Takamino Armour for a, a fantastic, fantastic interview. But we're not actually done. We've actually got another interview. A two-for-one. Uh, Isn't this the first time that's ever been even attempted on J-Play? This is a first-time attempt. Don't try this at home, folks. Two interviews, one after another, could be dangerous. First-time attempt, episode three. Yep. Uh, and coming up, we've got an amazing interview with the one and only... Robbie Belgrade. Wow. Amazing. We'll be right back. back you know this is a one of a one of a kind opportunity you know usually we only do one interview per episode but we've actually got two for one this actually kind of came together very very quickly but i'm so happy to have the wonderful talented robbie belgrade with us today Woo! <laughs> <laughs> the super secret last boss of the podcast yes exactly <laughs> how are you doing robbie yeah everything's good 
it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for taking you know a little bit of time out of your very busy schedule. Pleasure's all mine. Now, um, for those of uh, you few fans who don't know who Robbie Belgrade is and, and what he did, can you run down what you did uh, for your role and what your role was on Castlevania Symphony of the Night? I know it was 1996, so quite a ways ago. But Yeah, well, um, I voiced uh, Alucard, one of the main characters in Symphony of the Night, one of the original things uh-huh. for that series. So... Um, did you do this uh, out of Japan or the U.S., or what was the process involved? when uh, I did almost all of my voice work out of Japan. You know, I was living in Japan. I was going to university there, and someone offered me a voice gig, and that got me into the world of voiceovers. I didn't even know it existed, and uh, it turned out I had a good voice for it, and all of a sudden I started getting lots of work, and that was one of the jobs that came in. Oh, were you? So you, you actually didn't go seeking out voice acting as a, as a position. It was just something that kind of fell into your lap? Absolutely, yeah. I was going to university in Japan, and one of my professors casually asked me if I would like to do, you know, a voiceover job, and uh, I did it. And everybody said, "Wow, that was great! Thank you so much." And then I had a friend who was doing it full time, and I called him up and said, "Listen, man, you've been holding out on me. You know, you haven't told me anything about this, but I can do this." You know, and so he gave me all the contacts, and uh, you know, I contacted a bunch of agencies over there, and. Uh, sent my demo tape around and uh you know it just snowballed from there you definitely have a um a very unique and dare i say cool voice so i can see how something like that would uh present itself yeah you know i mean i'm really familiar with being in a recording studio because i'm a musician you know i record in recording studios all the time um so that part of it was very natural for me and then you know the fact that i'm a percussionist and you know, dealing with time all the time really plays into voice work. You know, they say, okay, we got to fit this long line in in three and a half seconds, you know, and, you know, I could usually nail it first take and producers like that. Things exactly. like that. You know? it, shor- it shortens the, uh, the studio time, which, of course, is always very expensive. So, yes, the producers love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, to be in Japan, you know, to be a successful voiceover artist, you also have to understand Japanese. You know, I'd been studying Japanese for years. I graduated from a, a Japanese university. So, you know, I mean, a lot of times they don't speak great English. Uh, so uh, they don't, they're not able to like, communicate some of what they want you to do sometimes. So you'll hear them talking to themselves in Japanese going, we want them to do this. How do we say that? And, and then you already know <laughs> what they want. You know, so that's a plus. So if you can do that, you get called back, you know. So you did this gig, um, and then, you know, the game was a kind of a sleeper hit, I think, at the time, and and it got a bigger and bigger um, following as time went on. Um, how did it feel to, to be this um, just key character for the series that most people consider to be one of the coolest characters uh, in all of the Castlevania games? Well, it's kind of funny, you know, I actually didn't, I, I was completely unaware of the fact that I had participated in that game at all. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you do, seriously, you do a lot of work in Japan and, and you don't see the, the completed game, right? What you do is a lot of times you'll get a script and uh, it's before the game has been put together. You have a series of unrelated lines and you read each line a few different ways and give them different inflections, you know, and then they kind of put it together later. You never see the full game. And, you know, since uh, I'm not really heavily involved in that world. I'm too busy just working on becoming a percussionist or a pianist or whatever I'm doing at the moment. 
Uh, I didn't, never even played that game. So I got back to the States after, you know, maybe 10 years after I made that game. And a fan, a thank you fans, you know, one of my fans sent an email to me asking for my autograph and saying, oh, we just love your, you know, your character, Alucard. And I was standing next to this guy who had grown up playing video games, a, a young friend of mine. And I said, have you ever heard of a game called Symphony of the Night? And he said, oh, yeah, I love that game. It's my favorite game I grew up playing. And I said, do you know a character named Alucard? And they said, oh, yeah. <laughs> me, man, you know. Do you know do you know that game Super Mario Brothers? Do you know the character named Mario? I think I may have voiced it. <laughs> I like that. It was really funny, you know. And then I went online and I went, wow, you know, it's like I'm featured in that game, you know. And so there you have it. That's kind of what went down. So you really didn't know that much about the game or the characters or the aesthetic of, of any of this before you started the recording for, for Alucard, correct? No, nothing. You know, I mean, when you go into a studio, they give you a basic, you know, outline of what the story's about and, and what kind of character you are. And then it's up to you to kind of fill it in as you go as best you can without very much context whatsoever. You know, it helps sometimes if they've already done the music, but a lot of times they don't even have the music together. You know, you really have to kind of imagine that stuff when you're doing that kind of work. You know, what is it going to sound like? How, how can I make this feel darker? It feels like it should be darker or it feels like it should be more threatening or whatever mood that you're trying to create using the lines that they give you right right and you know if you look at a lot of behind the scenes for a lot of recent games they usually have uh unvoiced cinematics in front of the voice actors maybe some music maybe they'll have multiple actors in the same booth i assume that when you were doing symphony of the night and and later uh games like tekken you didn't have any of that to to work with right Nothing. You're just sitting in front of a mic with a script with like random lines for like, you know, 10 pages. And then at the end of it, they say, okay, can we get some damage? You know, and you're going, what do you, okay, what do you want? He says, oh, can you die? And you go, Aah! you know, okay. <laughs> You know, and you always do that last because when you, you know, you, you become quite hoarse from dying and, you know, screaming in pain and stuff. So that's the last that kind of icing on the cake. Dying really uh, blows out your vocal cords, it, it turns it out, does. doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I have, uh, I have a question. Um, I've actually, uh, I worked at Capcom for eight years and I did some minor voice. I am not a voice actor, as you can tell by my very pinched nasal voice. Uh, but it was one of those, hey, these guys are already working at the company and it's cheap labor. Let's just use them sort of gig. But um, uh, one thing that occurred when I was trying to do it is a very similar thing to what you mentioned as far as I could tell they wanted me to do something, but they were not really wording it in a way that it was clear. And in my case, I was uh, saying one word, the word objection. And I'm like, it's one word. You can only add so much inflection or intonation. You can say it quick, slow, high, low. There's only so many things you can do with one word. Mm. Um, but I ended up saying that one word probably about 200 times. And mm -hmm. I started to get frustrated and at the very end, I said, how do you want me to say it? Uh, and they said, we want you to say it like you're a hot-blooded lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I, it, guys, it's one word. What does a hot-blooded lawyer sound like when he says one word? So I, I get these, um, these visions of uh, Lost in Translation. I don't know if you saw that movie, but the very beginning where they're screaming at Bill Murray and telling him to say it with more feeling. So I wonder if you have had any of those sort of situations in the past in Japan doing voice acting. Well, speaking of Lost in Translation, I actually had a, a three-month gig at the restaurant bar where they filmed that movie. 
Oh wow! And so, wow! So when when I saw that movie, it was hilarious, man. Because I'm going, that's that's where I played. You know, that's it's this bar up on the 59th floor in downtown Shinjuku, Tokyo. It's called the New York Bar and Grill. And uh, a lot of what happened in that movie, I would have to say, is not very exaggerated. I saw some amazing stuff while I was there. You know, just being in the band. But uh, as far as lost in translation in the recording studio, yeah, you get some of that. I'm trying to think of any specific instances. Usually, I mean, because I spoke Japanese, usually I didn't have too much trouble. You know, I could communicate pretty easily. Um, as always, certain recordings go smoother than others. You know, you, you have recording sessions that you say, wow, I really nailed that. And you feel very good about it. And other ones where it's kind of tough because what they're going for is not quite what your voice is about. You know, I mean, they pick you from a, a you know, a demo tape you send them usually. And yeah, sometimes they get just what they're looking for and sometimes they don't. So, yeah, it's a bit of hit and miss in anything you do right so do you uh, do you miss japan because now you've been away from it for several years correct yeah i've, I've been uh back here for nine years and i have yet to get back for a visit um yeah i mean there are aspects of japan i really miss you know uh the japanese people are so really nice and you know very sharing with all they do uh, the culture's cool I, I like japan it's an interesting place so yeah, you know, I, I'm hoping to get back there actually on a, a tour with one of my uh, friends who who plays Sarod. He plays North Indian classical music. I I play percussion tabla in that musical world, and uh, I may get a chance to go back there this fall even uh, if it works out and do a concert tour of Japan and visit relatives and like that. We'll see. Wow, definitely would love to get back there. That would be super cool. So I have one final question, Nyan, but I'll let you ask your uh, remaining questions if you have any. Okay. Yeah. Actually, uh, I really wanted to ask. I was looking through your, uh, you know, your casting list uh, for some of your past voice work, and I noticed the Tekken popped up a whole bunch. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, w- I was a little curious. Um, how did your work doing stage announcing and sort of the story narrative stuff for Tekken? How did that differ from more of the more regular uh, voice acting uh, work that you did for video games? Well, well, to be honest, I did more straight narration in Japan than I did voice acting. You know. Okay. Um, you know, as a voice actor you meet just some unbelievably talented people. There's guys who are just genius. I mean, like that Bugs Bunny guy, I forget his name, but he did Donald Duck and Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and all those people, right? right. That's one guy doing all those voices. I met people like that who could do all these characters. My, you know, I, I was pretty good at doing evil people and, and things like that, but I, I didn't have what I would consider a wide range of character voices at, at my fingertips, you know? So I did what I was good at, but some of these guys were just unbelievable. But most of what I did work-wise was doing like straight narration for lots of different companies and things like that and uh, (laughs) narrating, um, you know, TV dramas about samurais and things like that. So that part of it was really easy for me, actually. I, I feel comfortable doing the narrator end of it. Okay, so I mean, you know, in the case of Tekken, obviously, was most of the stuff you did was it uh, was it narration or was it you know like the short words li- similar to what Ben was talking about when he was talking about his voice work of just doing like one word here like fight or do this do that? Uh, both. I mean, I did everything. I did TV, radio commercials. I did straight narration. I narrated books. Uh, I did character voices. I I actually got hired to do like uh, MC things like uh, uh, a new skin convention in in Tokyo Dome which is this giant inside baseball stadium and you're you're speaking and you have to wear headphones because the reverb is so big that, you know, you go, hey, hey, and then three seconds later it goes, hey, hey, you know, it's like oh. bizarre. 
talking without the headphones it's just bizarre you know so i did all kinds of stuff and also i did acapella vocals you know and i was doing vocal commercials i did a a bra commercial you know, for, <laughs> put up bra and in the line was there's a mountain there's a valley there's a mountain oh wow Man, it sounds, yeah. like, it sounds like you had some fun with it, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I, I wasn't always a voice actor. Sometimes you get hired, you know, to do, like, TV drama type stuff. So I, I remember one time I was a corpse, and, and I had been gigging for a couple of days, like, all-night gigs and then working, and all night I was exhausted. So I, I get into the thing. They put me on a, a table in the morgue, put a sheet over me, take my shoes off so I'm barefoot. And I fell asleep listening with a, a, a Walkman thing, listening to music. And, and in the middle of the shoot, I actually woke up and, and sat up you know <laughs> he's alive <laughs> case closed there you go. excellent so you know i did all kinds of stuff oh that's fantastic yeah ben please go ahead uh, if you want to ask your final question so here's my final question we're going to close this out um this has been great i'll tell you what i almost wish we had a whole hour to just talk to you because uh, i know you've got some great stories uh, my final question is this, as a man who's also lived in Japan for over 10 years, what is your best Western, i.e. non-Japanese, karaoke song? Best Western song that I sing? Wow, I don't know. I mean... With a uh, voice like that, you had to have been to karaoke, and you had there has to be a certain singer or group that you can nail. I, you know, I don't really do much karaoke I, I was a jazz singer so you know uh, the very thought of you you know i i, I did jazz songs and stuff like that so okay more and more a classic uh, jazz more 50 60 sort of guy yeah yeah you know i'm i'm a jazz saxophone player so that's the kind of stuff you know things like uh, lush life and yeah things like that okay well thank you very much thank you so much uh, Robbie Belgrade, that was a fantastic interview. I really wish we could have spent uh, a little more time with you, uh, but I understand you're very, very busy. Um, but again, thank you, and uh, we will be right back. so much what an amazing interview with Robbie Belgrade that was one of a kind so so happy they were able to get that done indeed we pulled him out of the gaming cellar indeed so uh, this has already been probably one of our longest podcasts yeah um, but I hope you enjoyed it know that next week there will be even more Rondo of Megatons a lot of great stuff to talk about uh, but in the meantime I hope you uh, fantastic backers and listeners uh, if you're on the fence about pledging, you really should jump in. Uh, this really is uh, an amazing Kickstarter campaign, and it's more like an event than it is just a project. So I want you to be a part of it. If you're thinking about it, jump on in and enjoy communicating, talking with your other fellow gamers and backers, and continually locking down those backer achievements, because I'll tell you what, that motivates everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had such a good time talking about everything today. It's cool to actually have uh, a format where we can spend some time on the stuff that matters to us, where we can uh, talk in depth about everything cookies. we care about. Like cookies. 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 Uh, man, this looks so delicious. Eye roll. They're made of clay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Anyways, we've uh, <laughs> we've dragged this on long enough. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back next week. Stay with us for the entire campaign because we've got tons of unlocks to come, tons of stretch goals, amazing stuff coming. The surprises keep on coming. Thank you for listening to J Play, the Play Podcast. Mm-hmm.